Amen. Thanks, Roland. Well, good morning. My name is Jonathan. I'm the uh, executive pastor here at Pulpit Rock, and I am glad you are here. Happy Mother's Day. Um, I'm, uh, you have to bear with me. I'm feeling a little bit under the weather, which I think is appropriate on Mother's Day because I am going to get up and do my job regardless of how I'm feeling like all moms everywhere have to do. Um, so I'm channeling the spirit of mothers in this sermon today, I think. And then later on, I'll go home and I'll be a total baby about this little cold I have. Um, <laughs> so anyway, I'm glad you're here with us. If you have a Bible, I'd love for you to find a Bible and find your way to Matthew chapter 12. Uh, Matthew's the first book of the New Testament. Chapter 12 is about halfway through that. Uh, we're going to look at an interesting little story in the Gospel of Matthew. Um, but before we do, I thought I would just summarize the gist of everything the Bible says about you. Wouldn't that be nice? Basically, what the Bible says about who you are is you were created in the image of God. You bear His image, and you're deeply loved by God. And, you know, there's all sorts of stuff in the Bible that's confusing. There's things you have to really study to understand. There's nothing in the Bible that ever contradicts those two truths. You were created in the image of God, and you're deeply loved by God. And there's not even anything you could do to change those truths about you. You're created in the image of God. You're deeply loved by God. I'm just glad you're here. We started last week a series called Angry Jesus. I think it was more fun than it sounds like I thought, um, generally, but uh, we're just considering this as a question. Is God just so angry with all of us? You know, there's stuff in the Bible that would suggest that He is. Certainly, you can find religious people who will tell you, yes, He is. And we're taking this question of what God is like. And, you know, last week we talked about this image of, it's almost like some people describe God as if he is this stressed out dad on a road trip, yelling at the kids in the back seat, stop messing around, don't make me pull this car over. And he's just using his anger to try to get out of us some obedience and some compliance. Is that really what God is like? Well, we're taking that question straight to Jesus. Uh, and we're asking him that question. Uh, the Bible says this about Jesus. It should be the first thing that we read when it comes to Jesus, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And what that means is that everything Jesus is, God is. And so if we ever have these questions about what, is God, what God is like, we can just look straight at Jesus and say, well, what is Jesus like? And whatever Jesus is like, God is like that. And we're doing that with this whole issue of God's anger. And we're looking at the rare instances where Jesus got angry. And what we're discovering is the list of things that Jesus never got angry at is really quite long. There's a lot of things that didn't make Jesus angry. And, you know, there's really only one thing on the list of things that make him angry. And that is this exclusive, moralistic, judgmental religion. And that's something that consistently got him to raise his voice, which I think is both freeing because I don't like that stuff, but also challenging because sometimes I'm super religious. Today we're going to look at a different story in Matthew 12, and we're going to see some similar themes in his anger. Um, I know when we talk about the subject of anger, I know you know this, there's a lot of anger in our society right now, right? Have you noticed this? Um, if you've ever been online, that is where it is the most obvious. There is an enormous amount of anger online. Um, as you know, online discussions 
uh, are a horrific train wreck of everything that's wrong with humanity. We all know this, right? Sometimes I find myself feeling overly hopeful about humans, and I just go online and I'll read the comment section on literally any article ever, and then like all hope is lost, and I, you know, soul-crushing sorrow takes over. Um, I was on the Facebook, and I saw someone who posted this little children's book there. I don't know if you read this to your kids. Um, I don't know. I, I've tried to, I, I didn't do research. I was going to say I did some research. I didn't do research. I was trying to, I was wondering, is this a real book? It feels like people have read this book because it feels like this is where inevitably every online discussion is going to end with saying that someone is a Nazi. That's just how they go. Now, I'm sure that no one in this room has ever accused anyone of being a Nazi, right? Right? <laughs> but none of us are above this. It's something called the ad hominem fallacy. And what it is is when instead of arguing or debating ideas, we just attack the person who we disagree with. Um, let me give you an example of it. I was playing Scrabble with my sister-in-law not too long ago, um, and I was doing really good, and I played the fabulous word queso. It was like triple word score, like 90 points. It was a great word. So I played queso. I'm like, I'm going to beat her. To which she replied, you can't play queso. Queso is a Spanish word. This is English Scrabble. You can only play English words, right? You want to have a little discussion, a little dialogue. I like, sure, I'll have a dialogue with you about this. So I said, you're a racist. <laughs> and I feel like I won that discussion. So it's called the ad hominem attack. It is when you dismiss someone by not considering their ideas, but just by attacking who they are as a person. It may not surprise you to know that they did this when Jesus was around too, except they didn't call each other Nazis. If they really disagreed with someone and just wanted to dismiss them out of hand, they would say, you have a demon. Um, meaning like a demon from Satan is living inside of you. That's why you think like this. Which if you want to take your online discussions up a notch, consider you have a demon <laughs> as a comment. But uh, it, I'm sure it's no surprise to you that they actually said this about Jesus. They said he has a demon, and he didn't particularly care for it, as you would guess. And that's where we are in Matthew chapter 12, verse 22. I'm going to read out of the English Standard Version, but any uh, Bible version you use will generally say this. Verse 22, then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him. So that man spoke and saw, and the people were amazed and they said, can this be the son of David? But the Pharisees, when they heard it, they said, it's only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. So Beelzebul is like another name for Satan. So they're basically saying, it, you know, it, all those miracles are from Satan. It doesn't get any more dismissive than that. They're saying everything. Hey, this whole guy's from Satan. Like in our culture, when we say someone is Hitler, like everybody, Hitler is universally reviled. Everybody hates Hitler. Um, think about it. Hitler is so hated, he has forever eliminated a style of facial hair, right? 
It doesn't matter how kind and loving you are. It doesn't matter how handsome you are. If you wear a Hitler mustache, no one is going to trust you because anything in any way associated with Hitler is forever tainted. You can't just be a little bit like Hitler. The same was true with what these guys were saying to Jesus. Anything associated with Satan is somehow tainted. And the Pharisees, they can't argue with his power. They can't argue with the fact that everyone is amazed. They can't argue with his teaching. They can't argue with the reality that people who never felt included in the kingdom of God finally felt like they belonged. So instead of arguing with any of that, they said, hey, this guy's Satan. And it's not like his, you know, like just, well, just his power is satanic. You can't just be a little bit satanic. Either everything was satanic, the teaching, the love, the way that he interacted with people and the miracles, or nothing was. So they totally dismissed Jesus and they attacked his character. Now, they didn't say any of that to his face, uh, but Jesus knows what they're thinking and he's about to get a little upset. Look at verse 25. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But, but if, if it is by the Spirit of God, that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Jesus says, listen, y'all don't know the first thing about me. And you don't know the first thing about Satan. Satan would never allow the things that I am doing. Satan would never empower this message that I am preaching because it fundamentally undercuts Satan. And the only way I could have gotten away with what I've been doing is if I have already taken care of Satan because I am in his house and I am stealing his stuff. And then from there, he hits them with two statements that I think are earth-shattering. And you could almost, you could even draw a line between verse 29 and verse 30, because specifically with the Pharisees, those two verses are a dividing line. And from this point forward, his strategy with the Pharisees changes, and he says, I'm not going to try to convince you anymore. I am going to try to undercut your approach to spirituality. I'm done talking about this. I'm going to push back on you. And with these next two comments that he says, really, Jesus picks a fight that lasts until his death with these next two statements. The first one is this, verse 30. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. That's the first thing he says, is he says, listen, guys, you have to choose. You have to choose now. There's no more neutrality with me. Either I am from God, everything I do is from God, or I am from something else and nothing I do is from God. You have to choose. What are you going to do with me? You know, we know this on some level, this choice that he forces on these guys um, is the choice facing every human who's ever lived, ever. What are you going to do with Jesus? And that is the question of the spiritual life. 
none of us know exactly how that works. Um, there's been, you know, like in 2,000 years, a fair amount of argument, a fair amount of debate over this choice. Some people argue about how do we make that choice? What constitutes making a choice for Jesus? Some people argue about when in the span of our life we are able to make this choice. Some people argue even about how much choice we have. Some people say we don't choose God. God chooses us. And other people say, no, God respects the free will of humans. So it's been 2,000 years of theologians arguing and debating about this choice. And if you think I'm going to resolve it today, you're crazy. Um, I actually think that one of the things we need to recognize with that is God has left it a little bit unresolved so that we have to trust him. I want to just point out two things that we know without a doubt when it comes to this choice. What are you going to do with Jesus? We know this without a doubt. God is full of a lot of grace for us, and we can trust him. God is full of a lot of grace for us, and we can trust him. And listen, if you have loved ones who have died and you don't know, hey, I, I don't know what, what they did with this choice about Jesus. God is full of a lot of grace for us, and we can trust him. If you worry, you know, about people born on the other side of the planet, people who've never heard the name of Jesus, people raised in an environment where they can't trust and put faith in Jesus Christ, God is full of a lot of grace for us, and we can trust him. I think about this a lot. I think about uh, in October, I got to travel with the Exodus Road, which is a great nonprofit, fights human trafficking. We go into brothels and uh, look for underage girls who could be hopefully freed from human trafficking. I've thought about those girls literally every day since I was there. Um, and this is true without a doubt. Those kids probably have no chance of saying yes to Jesus the way you and I have, right? I mean, all they've ever known is a world of sexual exploitation and abuse. And it's not like the four spiritual law pamphlet is going to get it done. Realistically, they'll probably never pray the sinner's prayer that I led each of my three boys to pray. But we know this. Jesus is after those girls as much as he is after my kids. And God is full of a lot of grace for us, for them, for all people. And we can trust him with this decision. What do you do about Jesus? We can trust him. But that's not all. We also know this. This is the other half of the coin. We know grace always stings. Grace always stings. And that's why sometimes some people don't want it. That's why some people, they look at who Jesus is, they look at the grace and the love that he has to offer, they look at what God offers us through Jesus, and they say, you know what, I'm going to pass, I'm going to opt out on that. I don't, I, I don't want it. That's what the Pharisees were doing. They were opting out, because to embrace who Jesus was would have required these men to admit some things about themselves their, in their hardness of heart they refused to admit. It stung too much. It hurt too much to say it. And so instead uh, of recognizing him, instead of going with him, instead of saying, yes, I'll be open to what you're saying, they said, you are Satan. And Jesus says, guys, you have to choose. You can't just be on the fence. Are you going to be with me? And clearly they are not. So he hits them with this. Look at verse 31. This is the second thing he says. Dividing line in his ministry. 
says, therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. But the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Now, you may have heard of something called the unforgivable sin. How many of you have heard that phrase, the unforgivable sin? Okay, a few of us. Kind of an interesting little biblical doctrine here. Jesus only mentions it on two occasions, and in both occasions, like this one, he ties it to the Holy Spirit, and he describes it as us somehow discounting the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, what's the work of the Holy Spirit? John 15, he tells us, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. So the Spirit does a lot of things for us, but the primary thing the Spirit does is he witnesses and testifies about Jesus Christ to human hearts. So this question that Jesus hits them with, are you going to be with me or are you going to be against me? That choice we all have to make as humans, the Spirit is what God gives us to answer that question. And the unforgivable sin is when we resist that work of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus says, guys, you have seen me for who I am. You've seen the miracles, the power, the the message. You've seen everything about who I am, and you are resisting what the Spirit is saying to you. Guys, there is no coming back from that. There's no coming back from that. You are on this road, and it only ends one way. Now, let me give you just a couple anchors to hang on to with this, because unforgivable sin, it sounds scary. Here's what I want to assure you. The unforgivable sin is never something that you accidentally commit. If you're worried about committing it, you haven't committed it. It also is never something that you passively commit. What's happened is they've seen Jesus, a man like no other, and they've rejected the work of the Holy Spirit in a way that is permanent. Now, we need to realize this, um, that's kind of a unique situation. The vast majority of people who saw Jesus for who he was didn't do this. In fact, the opposite was true. The vast majority of people who saw Jesus for who he was, they were drawn to him. And that was even true after he died and he rose again. And consequently, Christianity, it begins to spread like wildfire. Nobody could stop it no matter how hard they tried to squash this thing about Jesus because the work of the Holy Spirit is to reveal the person of Jesus Christ to human hearts. They couldn't stop it. And I I would submit to you that the same is true today. People are still drawn to Jesus And listen, I know I see the headlines like you guys do. There's a lot of doom and gloom kind of about Christianity. There's a lot of headlines like, oh, nobody cares about God anymore. No, you know, we're under attack as people and all this sort of stuff. Listen, let me say something that may be a little bit radical to you, but I think it needs to be said. I think people today are more interested in the person of Jesus Christ than ever before. I think people, like I even look at my life 30 years ago, I think people are more interested in the real Jesus Christ today than they were 30 years ago. I recently heard a talk by a guy, uh, Alan Hirsch. He, uh, his wife, Deb, was here with us in February. They're Australian, and he was talking about a survey that they did in Australia, which is a, a very non-Christian uh, country. There's not a lot of believers who self-identify as followers of Jesus. 
Um, but they did this survey where they asked people just kind of their feelings about God, spirituality, Jesus, and the church. And as you would probably guess, people were overwhelmingly positive about the first three, God, spirituality, and Jesus. And they weren't particularly positive about the last one. And Alan pointed this out. He said, I bet we could stop anyone on the face of the planet, no matter what religion, no matter what background ethnically, you could even stop an atheist and just ask them this question. Hey, top of your head, name the top three humans of all time. He said, there's a very high likelihood that, that that person would name Jesus as one of their top three humans of all time. Now, I'm not saying liking Jesus or thinking he's a good guy is the same as having faith in Jesus, but I want you to see this. One of the reasons I believe that God exists and I believe that the Holy Spirit exists is because in the last 2,000 years of human history, despite what we as the people of God have done to damage and tarnish the reputation of Jesus, Despite, all, we've done a lot. I mean, like the Crusades, the Inquisition, the colonization, like Christian movies. I mean, we've done a lot to tarnish. Just, just want to see if you're listening. Um, we've done a lot of horrible stuff, right? And yet, 2,000 years later, people are still more drawn to Jesus than ever before. And, and if you ask them about Jesus, the response will be overwhelmingly positive, even if they say, yeah, I don't believe any of the stuff he said. But man, there was something about that guy. And virtually no one you ask will say what the Pharisees said. I think he's from Satan. Nobody would say that. See, the primary job of the Holy Spirit is to bear witness about Jesus. And, and guys, what I would say to us is, it appears the Holy Spirit has been doing his job for 2,000 years. It's been miraculous. And when leaders stand up and they say, hey, the culture's against us, and hey, the world's becoming so hostile to what we believe, uh, you know, I'll be honest, I just don't think the Holy Spirit is all that worried. The Holy Spirit has faced way bigger challenges than this. Let's not forget that the biggest challenge to the work of the Holy Spirit is often organized religion, not the immoral world. And so whatever transition that we are in, I just don't think the Holy Spirit's worried. He's going to keep doing what he does. You know what I think's happening is, you know, people don't particularly like church, which I, I get. I mean, it makes me sad because I like church a lot, but they still like Jesus as much as ever, they ever have. Maybe what that should say to us is not that, hey, we're under attack, but maybe that should just say to us, hey, our churches should look more like Jesus and less like church. And let's move in that direction. Here's my point. I think we can have some hope here because most people do not reject the work of the Holy Spirit in the way Jesus is talking about. They may reject us. They may reject church. They may reject aspects of what we believe, but that's not the question Jesus is asking these guys. He is focused on this question. What are you going to do with me? And Jesus says to these men, listen, if you resist this, there's no coming back from that. That's it. Then he goes on in the next few verses. I'll let you read them on your own. He calls them stuff like brood of vipers and uh, wicked and adulterous generation and a few other impolite names. But like he's just done with these guys. He says, from this point forward, I'm done. What do we do with this? 
2,000 years later. What do we do with this? Uh, Jesus gets angry with these guys, the unforgivable sin, all that stuff. Let me try to bring this together to a conclusion that I think maybe is the, the takeaway from this story. Soft-heartedness is really important to God. Soft-heartedness is really important to God, and hard-heartedness can be really costly to us. Now, let me define that for you a little bit. Soft-heartedness, it is that ability to be open to information that we don't already have. And a lot of times we make this mistake. We think to ourselves, hey, I'm doing the best I can. And we all are. We are doing the best I can. Or we think to ourselves, hey, I'm doing everything that I know to do. And we all are. We're doing everything that we know to do. But that, not, it, that in and of itself is not soft-heartedness. Soft-heartedness is defined by this ability for God to redirect us to move us from this thing to this thing over here. And soft-hearted people are able to do that. And the thing about hard-hearted people, like these Pharisees, is they're not inherently immoral. It's not like they're necessarily sinning all the time, but they just cannot be redirected by God. No matter what he does, no matter what he says, he will not, they will not let him redirect them to something else. That's the issue with these Pharisees. And you see Jesus, the image of the invisible God, he is reacting against this hard-heartedness in a way that he doesn't react to anything else. And I think one of our takeaways has to be, man, that is pretty high on the list of things that God wants in us as humans. This humility, this willingness to listen, this willingness to be malleable and be open to things that maybe we don't initially see. Man, God really values that. Recently, um, I was uh, working with my therapist on a issue, and it uh, doesn't matter the issue, but we were talking about it for a few weeks, and I got by myself, and I decided I'm just going to write down, here's what I think about this issue. So I wrote down all this stuff before we met, and I, uh, you know, walked into her office. I'm like, I've got my paper. I've got my list of, here's how I see it. And she's like, hey, Jonathan, how are you doing today? And I'm like, I'm glad you asked pull out my paper. Let me tell you how I'm doing. Uh, read through all the stuff I'd written down. Now, if you've been to therapy, you know what happens next. Um, she takes a deep breath, says, well, let's talk about all that stuff. Um, and an hour later, lo and behold, I walk out of that office, miraculously viewing everything about the situation totally differently. Right? Despite the fact that I walked in 100% confident in my perspective, she clued me in to a few things that maybe I just wasn't quite seeing, a few things that maybe I was blind to. I think that's what good therapy does, is it just helps you, it opens your eyes to blind spots that you have. I know some people are like, hey, I don't need therapy. I don't need someone to tell me what's wrong with my life. Honestly, I've experienced that so many times, guys. After like 42 years of those sorts of experiences, I'm beginning to suspect that maybe I don't know everything the way that I think I do. Um, but it just happens again and again and again. This is what's true of soft-hearted people. They are really confident in what they don't know. They are really confident that they have a high capacity for blindness. They have faith in their capacity for blindness. And the essence of soft-heartedness is this openness to new information, this willingness to listen and to consider things from God that maybe are not in your head. That's what the Pharisees couldn't do. They were just so hard-hearted. Jesus was saying things. They just couldn't take in the new stuff that he said. 
Let me ask you a question maybe you've never thought about. How soft is your heart? If God wanted to say something to you, new, could you hear it or would you resist it? You know, Jesus has this moment of anger and conflict with the Pharisees. It wasn't because they're believing the wrong things, right? That, he met people like that all the time. It wasn't even because they were sinning. He met sinners all the time, and he didn't mix it up with them like this. This conflict occurred just because they had hardened their heart, and they had built up this defense against being challenged. And out of his deep love for these guys, I think this is the progression we see over 12 chapters. He's trying to break through their hardness of heart. And the miracles are an attempt. The powerful sermons are an attempt. The loving kindness, and they resist all of that stuff. And so now he's raising his voice in this last-ditch effort to break through their heart and say something to them that they just would not receive. Let me close with an illustration on where this comes from, and then I want us to just reflect a little bit, and then we'll head out. Um, I have a dog named Wilson. There is Wilson the dog. Wilson, uh, he is simultaneously like the best dog ever, like really the best dog ever. And he is also the most neurotic animal I have ever met. And he has all these weird things that he does. He just is anxious all the time. And um, he, one of his weirdnesses is he will not let anyone touch his paws for no reason at all. And you see the little cast he has on there. Um, so uh, about a year ago, Wilson steps on this garden fence and he slices his paw open, right? And it was bad, like blood everywhere, like really bad. And he's, he's just looking at us like, how could you let this happen? This is my worst nightmare. That's how he talks. Um, And of course, Becky and I were trying to get a good look at this paw. We're like, well, what, what's actually happening? There's a lot of blood and fur. We couldn't really see it. And every time we try to look at it, he barks and he bites and he just loses it. So we put him in his kennel. We load up the car. We take him to the emergency room for dogs, which is just as much of a racket as it sounds. I mean, it's ridiculous. <laughs> Somehow they take him back. They bandage him up and the vet comes back out and he says, listen, you know, three to four weeks, you can take the bandage off and uh, you can come back here. We'll take it off for you. And I'm like, well, how much does that cost? Because, you know, he's a dog. <laughs> There's a limit. Um, yeah. He's not one of the kids. There's a limit. Um, he's an uninsured animal. Don't tell my kids I said that. Um, so anyway, I, how much does that cost? And that's like, well, you know, it's like a $200 visit. I'm like, what? I have scissors at home. I don't need to come back. We will remove it ourselves. Thank you, sir. Um, so that, that's the decision we made. Um, so for three weeks, you know, he's got the cone of shame. He's got this bandage on his leg. He's limping around. He's like, how could you let this happen? Is it because I'm a bad dog? And I just, I tell him, well, consider could be. You never know. Um, none of you are going to let me dog sit now. I'm sorry. Anyway, so, so for two, three weeks or whatever that happens, um, and he's beside himself the whole time. Finally, the day comes to remove the bandage. So Becky and I, we sit down in the living room. We kind of call him over. We try to like block him in because um, he's looking at us all suspicious and protective. And we start trying to get that bandage off. Guys, 
Four hours is how long it took us to get that bandage off. Four hours of like bribes and like pinning him down and like taking the scissors and making like a little cut. And then he's up and he runs off and jumps over the barriers we've made. I mean, by the end of it, we were like sweaty and we were exhausted and we were covered in hair. And it was just a miserable experience. I would have gladly paid twice. (laughs) But that, that paid, I... Why was that so difficult? You know, at its core, I think it was just competing agendas, right? Wilson has this agenda in life. No one touches my feet ever. And Becky and I had this agenda too. And our agenda was do what's best for the stupid dog we love, right? (laughs) And in this case, those agendas, they were mutually exclusive. They were colliding and someone's agenda had to lose. I'm sure you see where I'm going with this. Uh, We all, when we harden our heart, it is in an attempt to protect something that hurts. It is an attempt to protect our agenda. We start protecting something we don't want to lose, something that we don't want to give up. There's something that we don't want to risk. Here's Jesus. He's trying to pin these Pharisees down and cut off from them this thing that is hindering them, yet they are so violently protective of their kingdom, they wouldn't have it, even though it would have been the best thing for them. That's, that's the Pharisee story, and I, you know, I mean, I, I have some sympathy. It's a tragic story, isn't it? So protective they couldn't hear it. Let's talk about us. Let's talk about our story. If, there's anything, if you're anything like me, there are parts of your heart that you violently protect. And they may not be obvious to a lot of folks. They may be hidden. But here's what I want to say to you about those areas. The area of your heart that you are most interested in protecting is the area of your heart that Jesus is most interested in touching. I don't know what that part of your heart is, but I I would say two things about it. One is just this, just like with the Pharisees, Jesus, out of his deep love for you, he is persistently trying to get past your defenses, trying to work his way past those hard places in your heart, trying to pin you down, trying to touch that one part of you that you don't want anyone to touch. He's trying to break through those hard places because he loves us. He's not going to give up. He's persistent. I also know this about that. His grace for you in that area, man, it's going to be the best thing for you. It is going to be the thing that years from now you talk about in, in, in your life of, look at what God did, but it will sting a little. There's a little bit of pain in it. It's going to sting because he's going to bring to your attention something that you're not seeing. It's going to sting because it's going to require a depth of humility that maybe you don't want to go there with. It's going to sting because it's going to require you to trust, and none of us like to trust. It's going to require us to be willing to change, and none of us like that. All that stuff, it feels like loss, doesn't it? It feels like loss to me. That's why we protect Those areas we're most interested in protecting, those are the areas that Jesus is most interested in touching. 
He's trying to get past our defenses because he knows we can't experience his kingdom of love, justice, and mercy while we protect ourselves. Let me just close with this reflection question. What are you protecting? Are there areas of your heart that have grown hard in an attempt to keep you safe? If God said something to you outside of what you would expect, could you hear it? Listen, not only is Jesus not angry at you, we talked about that last week, but I would say this, he cares about you so much that he's never gonna stop trying to get past your defenses to touch your heart. And I wonder if today we could just lean into this idea as we close in worship. I just know that some of us are like Wilson, we're running, we're biting, we're fighting him. Maybe instead of that, today could be a day of softening. Those areas we're most interested in protecting, those are the areas he most wants to touch. What are you protecting?